0: You're listening to Oh No Lick Class.
1: Mostly dead authors. Fresh takes.
0: Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that's here to talk about books and fight windmills, and we're all out of windmills. I'm Megan.
1: I'm Don Quixote.
0: And today. I'm Pancho Villa. No, you're definitely more uh, Don Quixote. And
1: wasn't I'm it? I'm RJ. Wasn't
0: Pancho Villa? Wasn't it like Sancho Panza or something?
1: Oh, maybe. Who's Pancho Villa? I don't know. Uh, I'm RJ. <laughs>
0: you're RJ. Now I have to know who Pancho Villa is. I'm RJ. Yes. Pancho Villa was a Mexican revolutionary general. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we're not talking about Don Quixote or Pancho Villa or anything at, at all. We, we come to you today. No, we do come. We do come, a lot. Today, in particular, as, as just changed people. We've just gotten back from, from our long, strange journey, and we, we saw McElroy's on a stage in person.
1: Oh, is that who that was? Yeah. Oh,
0: who, who, who'd you think it was? I wasn't sure. And so we come back refreshed, renewed, and ready to tell you about Jules Verne and his novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The drip-roaring adventure tale of the ocean Jules Verne is widely considered to be...
1: French yeah he's
0: widely considered to be French and kind of one of the key founders of sort of early what we would think of as science fiction although he would greatly dispute that fact and so yeah 20,000 leagues under the sea is is up there in like the the pantheon of classic adventure literature I would say
1: how long is a league
0: I have no clue is it like is it a is it a metric thing or is it just a nautical thing?
1: Five kilometers. Great. Or about three point four miles.
0: Okay, so what's three three point So I got some bad news. Yeah.
1: You do the math there. Yeah. That'd be sixty thousand miles. Yeah. You can't be sixty thousand miles under the sea.
0: Well no. He he means that like by the end of their journey they've traveled sixty thousand miles and they've done it all while under the sea.
1: I suppose. I'm thinking straight line here. No,
0: they that that's not a thing that's possible. <laughs> that's what I'm saying, man. Yeah, well, yeah. No, he's maybe he's not being super clear about it, but he's he's saying that they've gone a whole bunch of leagues and they were underwater for it because that's how a sub does.
1: Yeah, that means they went around the Earth like ten times.
0: Well, as you will uh, read, they they do some things. So, I take it you have not read this book. Nope. Shocker. I was not assigned this book. I don't know how widely this is an assigned book. I feel like people get more H.G. Wells than
1: Jules Verne,
0: like War of the Worlds and stuff.
1: Oh, it was on the radio, of course. Um, And it had Tom Cruise.
0: It did have Tom Cruise, and everyone was like, well, we have to teach this. Tom Cruise is in it. I was not assigned it either. I read it in either like the end of middle school or the beginning of high school, just kind of at random grabbed it one lunchtime in the school library cuz that's where i spent my lunchtimes cuz i was a lonely nerd uh so i was like 12 or 13 and i was like i know this is like a famous book or whatever and also it, you know it looks like the the cover had a giant squid on it wrapped itself around like a big submarine and it had like a dude and its other tentacle and i'm like all right this looks pretty tight and that's how I first came upon the book.
1: We really spoke to that hentai fan inside of you, huh?
0: Gross!
1: Yeah, first H.P. Lovecraft, now this, man. Uh,
0: I, I'm not the one who picked H.P. Lovecraft. I know, you didn't
1: pick it at all.
0: Uh, yeah, I didn't.
1: Alright, so is this the one he goes to the center of the earth?
0: No, that's a different, that's a different, Journey to the Center of the Earth is a different Jules Verne.
1: Uh, how about, uh, is this when he flies around the world in a balloon in...
0: 80 days? Yeah. Not around the world in 80 days. He does a lot of traveling books, huh?
1: Yeah expedition writer here
0: Hmm. indeed well then let's not uh, waste any more time on our own expedition uh rj why don't you tell us about the man the myth the fellow whose pictures i gotta say he's got very kind eyes in like just very soft gentle gaze just want to put that out there jules verne
1: so as we continue on the strange and winding path of all things in the orbit of Ernest P. Worrell, like oh. Ernest Hemingway, and then later the author of The Importance of Being Ernest, we find ourselves now on the other side of the proverbial camera, as we now focus on Verne. Oh,
0: god damn it. I should have, you know, I it, this is my fault for not recognizing
1: this. Specifically, Jules Gabriel Verne, born the 8th of February, 1828, and died March 24, 1905. So, little junior varsity jv was born in nance france on
0: <laughs> all right i don't know what i'm gonna take issue with here more yeah jv jules virginia varsity or what i'm sure is a horrible mispronunciation of wherever he was born in oh, france oh wait i'm about
1: to hit that water
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh no oh, no that's
1: not <laughs> a letter that we know nantes
0: Non-non- nantes nantes well, not that be, Nance. That would, that would be anti, right? It it's sure, it sure, Nance. shit is not Nance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Nance. All right, we're gonna have to here go to go to pronunciation.
1: What the fuck you want from me?
0: Because we're gonna learn how to pronounce this shit. Because we do this all the time.
1: Uh, Nant, Nant, Nant.
0: What does it mean if there's an enya over a vowel? Nant,
1: France. He was born in Nant, France. <laughs> not uh, France. Isle Feu. A small artificial island. Yes, an artificial island. No word if it was an island of trash and/or dogs, but we can only hope so. He was actually born in and lived in for the first year of his life in the house of his maternal grandmother, Dame Sophie Alot. Well,
0: why are you doing this to
1: yourself? Like, there's. <laughs> de la Fouillée.
0: Oh no! Oh, no! Jesus, give me that. <laughs> Dame Sophie Alot, Alot. Alot de la. Uh, since when is there a fucking umlaut in, in the French?
1: Fouillée. Fouille. jv's dad was pierre verne and mama verne was also known as sophie lot de la fouille
0: okay see when you do that you sound like a drunk cajun
1: oh god no <laughs> so if you caught that mom's mom named mom after herself
0: yeah well that tends to happen at least jules is is jules and not pierre
1: so daddy jv was a lawyer yeah. mommy jv was generally a homemaker her family got their artificial island from being successful ship owners and navigators
0: so what, how did they, like, artificial islands, like they had land, like, dumped there and made an island where there was no island? Yep. Like, like okay.
1: They made an island happen.
0: Okay. Because, like, I'm just having trouble wrapping my head around this in these before times, how, how they did that shit.
1: And this brings us to this installment of Island Owning with RJ, brought to you by Te Ka. You won't like me when <laughs> someone steals the heart of Te Fiti. Te Ka. Check yourself before I wreck your ass Co-
0: coming in hot with these super timely Moana jokes
1: <laughs> I was rewatching the movie recently <laughs>
0: how were you now
1: anyway you want to own an island sure why not well I'm here to tell you bad idea for anybody listening to this D- like oh how are you gonna get electricity true Amazon deliveries drone or have friends visit you for dinner on a whim mm. nah man I want own needs for suckers. Plus, with the rising seas, your island's gonna flip over or something in no time.
0: I mean, y- y- d- 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 What? I mean, dr- drown, yeah. G- get subsumed by, perhaps, flip?
1: Oh, there's a U.S. congressman who thinks islands are gonna flip.
0: Oh, Jesus
1: Christ. Democrat. He thought Puerto Rico was gonna flip. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> because Jesus. Because we there were pretty too many troops on. One side.
0: Oh, fuck me. There you go. Idiocy is a bipartisan issue.
1: (laughs) And really, creating an artificial island? There are plenty of uninhabited islands out there that no one wants. Like orphans. At least adopt an island if you're going to make the stupid mistake of having one. Valid. In short, life is better on the mainland. So that wraps up this episode of Island Owning with RJ. Remember, this episode was brought to you by Take Ka. Stay out of the water. Don't go past the reef. Because if you do, (laughs) you might doom us all. (laughs) Anyway, back to the Artificial Island. A bad idea indeed. When old university was the ripe old age of one, Mommy and Daddy JB decided that, well, they had a kid. Maybe it was time to move out of Grandma's house. So they moved, literally a few hundred meters away. Yep, the old, well, I'm out of here. Later, bitches. And setting up shop on the other end of the Artificial Island. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> oh, speaking of esoteric measurements. Of distance, they set up shop close enough that an Aaron Rodgers throw, a nice spiral, could be thrown between the houses. Now, just so you know, Meg, an Aaron Rodgers spiral was the most American of measurements. Oh, for all of you non-American listeners out there, trust us.
0: Okay. I
1: measure everything by how far Aaron Rodgers can throw a football.
0: It. it, (laughs) this feels like we're, we're doing a, a life death and taxonomy measure up right now and how little this makes sense so let's just keep moving on
1: how do you measure things like Not- i use my penis oh that's five dicks right there
0: yeah your dick's a standard unit of measurement
1: see now the real question is is it hard or soft it changes its variable it really brings that meaning to the dangle of the angle, you know what I mean? Angle of the, dangler, the dangle. The dangle to
0: the angle. Yep, that's it. Those are words. That That's the order they go. And please, God, keep talking about Jules Verne and less about your penis.
1: <laughs> How about Aaron Rodgers' throws? They're so pretty. Sure. When J.B. was six, he was sent off to boarding school. There he had a very particular teacher, Madame Sabine. Unfortunately for the madame. Her husband, a naval captain...
0: Is this going to be a long, weird fucking tangent? Is this going to lead somewhere? <laughs> yeah, it leads lead somewhere, good. Oh, Jesus.
1: Her, her husband, a naval captain, had gone missing 30 years prior. Apparently, this was something she just kind of owned and talked about under the guise of telling people she was waiting for him to come back any day now. Yeah, so after 30 years, she was convinced this dude was basically Robinson Crusoe.
0: Why are you making fun of this lady trying to deal with the fact that her husband probably died at sea?
1: Hello, my class of six-year-olds. Let's talk about what you think my husband's doing on his desert island right now. Drinking a daiquiri, perhaps? Or maybe his monkey butlers have made him a rack of lamb. What
0: does this have to do with Jules Verne?
1: Boy, oh boy, I can't wait until he's back to tell me about his great journeys. So here's the thing. This apparently really stuck with little old J. V. as he used the Robinson Crusoe story as the basis for a number of his own stories. And it really made him to want to jump in a boat and go explore.
0: So hearing about... How this woman lost her husband at sea And he never came back Made him like Yeah, let's get get me in a boat pronto
1: Yes, because this woman talked for 30 years about all the
0: For 30 years
1: For 30 years He He's was been... not in
0: school with her for 30 years Well,
1: <laughs> by the time he was there The guy had been missing for 30 years already And she was still waxing poetic On all the great adventures he was having He must be having that, that's, that's basically what she did She had story time every day of, What's my husband doing now?
0: Oh boy Okay, yeah, that's kind of unhealthy
1: And people let her teach <laughs>
0: It was a different time, and also, you know, that doesn't necessarily impact her ability to, like, teach them whatever the fuck six-year-olds learn, Edition.
1: So eventually, JV was sent to a different school, supposedly not to get away from the crazy madame, (laughs) although I think that would have been reason enough, Mm. instead to get his religion on a Catholic school. The young lad excelled at geography, Greek, Latin, and yes, memorization. That was a required course.
0: It still, in many ways, is.
1: Apparently, his ability to recall random shit was A+. After school, J.V. would usually kind of just chill down by the water and watch boats as they sailed on by. He daydreamed about the journeys all those folks went on. And then, at the grizzled age of 11, J.V. allegedly decided to do something about it. So, I have to preface the story a bit by saying there is some debate as to if it actually happened. Later biographers say it's preposterous. However, the Verne family says that it actually kind of probably did happen.
0: Well, they would.
1: So, here's the tale. JB was 11. He wanted to go on an adventure. In particular, he wanted to get a coral necklace for his cousin, Coraline.
0: Aww.
1: He thought about where the best place to get one of those would be, and he decided the place he needed to go was the West Indies. Of course. He found a ship named the Eye that was heading to the West Indies, and he convinced the captain to hire his 11-year-old ass as a cabin boy. What? The ship set sail. Daddy J.V. found out what happened, and unlucky for J.V., or maybe lucky, given his 11-year-old age, the ship's first stop was only a few miles up the road. Oh, good. (laughs) Daddy J.V. caught up with the ship and dragged J.V. off of it. He made (laughs) J.V. agree to travel, quote, only in his imagination.
0: Aww. From
1: that point forward, J.V. agreed.
0: Okay, I want this story to be true. Like, he's on an artificial island with living 10 seconds away from his grandparents. He's in boarding school. He's confined in all these places. And he's just like, I dream of adventure! And the boat goes like 10 feet. And the dad's just like, uh uh-uh. uh.
1: Yeah, he never did get that coral necklace for his cousin. Aww. More on that soon, though. That's a cute story. Yeah, wait till he wants to marry her. What? Cousin? that's, uh, it. that's... Come on.
0: Man. <laughs> The fucking cousin marriage.
1: Thank God it's a cousin. <laughs> it could be way worse.
0: I guess at least they're the same age.
1: I think she was actually older. In 1842, when he was 14 years old, J.V. wrote one of his earliest works, and the earliest to have survived, a priest, in 1839. The novella basically shits all over the church and the seminary, which I guess makes sense for a 14-year-old who's been going to school in a Catholic church so rebellious Mm -hmm. after high school jv settled into writing full-time he was pretty good at it too problem was dad was a lawyer who wanted his son his eldest child to follow in his footsteps so daddy sent jv off to paris to go to law school oh yeah and about that cousin there might have been something else that was in play too jv had been seriously crushing on that cousin Coraline.
0: Crows and Cush.
1: He didn't want to just get a coral necklace for her anymore. Uh, Maybe he wanted to give her a pearl necklace now.
0: Oh no! Gross.
1: Like he really wanted to take her to Bone Town.
0: Oh God.
1: So the family wasn't exactly big on the idea. Good. So basically, as soon as Jv was sent to Paris, she was married off to another guy without telling Jv.
0: Aw, I mean, good, but off.
1: Jv was actually pretty good at law school. He. Also met a young woman in Paris that he fell in love with while on the rebound. Unlucky for him, her parents disapproved of JV, too, and married her off to some other guy. He's
0: rich! He's gonna be a lawyer! What the hell's
1: the problem? Always the bridesmaid, this JV was. Having a second woman snatched from under him sent him into a spiral. JV was said to have written many a drunk letter, as it was a time before drunk calling. I feel like
0: that takes a lot more effort because, like, it's really easy to just be hammered and pick up the phone and just be like, I love you. Like, imagine the time it takes to be drunk, write a letter being like, I love you, get the letter, put the letter in the envelope, seal it, find a stamp, mail the letter, and just be drunk for that whole process.
1: That's how dedicated he was. (laughs) Think about it. He fell in love with two women at both times. The parents go, we're going to marry her off to somebody else.
0: One was his cousin?
1: Also, this whole episode might explain why his novels mention a lot of women being married off against their will and then having affairs. Could be. While he did eventually finish law school, JV was smitten with the literary world in Paris. Among his favorite authors, Victor Hugo. JV wrote to his parents often, generally telling them about all the ways he was spending their money. <laughs> oh, and that he suffered from pretty bad stomach cramps, and facial paralysis from time to time, as one does. What? Yep.
0: What was wrong with him?
1: Uh, scholars suspect he had colitis, which might explain the tummy troubles. Oh, and he had a series of inner ear infections that paralyzed his face.
0: Oh, no!
1: The next time you got a ear infection, just, <sighs> you know, be on the lookout for <sighs> facial paralysis. Oh,
0: great. That's another thing I could be thinking about all the time now. Neat.
1: At the age of 21, J.B. crossed paths with an Ono Le alum, Alexander Daddy Dumas, a man who needed no help when it came to women. True. Sadly, that luck did not rub off on old J.B. The two did collaborate on some projects, however. Daddy J.B. remained insistent that J.B. return home and become the lawyer he wanted. Basically, when J.B. was 24, Daddy V. gave him an ultimatum. Become a lawyer or you're donezo, dude. J.B. declined. What? He said, quote, am I not right to follow my own instincts? It's because I know who I am that I realize what I can one day be. Yeah. So now being a guy cut off from his source of money, but wanting to still be a writer, I guess JB started to do what any inspiring writer would do. Go to New York? Well, before hanging out at Starbucks (laughs) was a thing, he started to hang out at the Bibliothèque Nationale de France aka the national library of france he met all sorts of cool people doing research travelers and aspiring travelers he would get their tales help them look stuff up he would also get to know a good number of scientists there as well basically he just lived to interview smart people about why they were in the library
0: how did he pay the bills but i mean like that sounds awesome just hanging out and be like tell me cool stuff about you i'm gonna help you look up like random geography shit but like how did he live
1: Fern was writing some short stories and helping stage plays during that time. A lot of his work focused on science and travel tales. In 1858, through the connections he made, J.V. scored his first trip outside of France. He was 30. He was able to voyage for free from France along the Scandinavians and the United Kingdom. J.V. did not get very far, but the trip did leave a lasting impact on him. Back in France, J.V. returned to his life as a social butterfly. A friend said of J.V. JV, quote, did better in repartee than in business. Case in point, JV was the best man and a groomsman at a number of weddings. Luckily, finally, JV had his number called. While at a wedding, he made eyes with the bride's sister. The bride's widowed sister straddled with two toddlers. Look, we all can't win the lottery. Hey! Like RJ.
0: Alright, fine.
1: <laughs> but hey, JV finally got called up to the bigs. Way to go, JV. The two. Her name was Viance Morel, married, and J.B.
0: I know you're not pronouncing it. Viance. Viance Viance
1: Morel. Maybe. Married, and J.B. even wound up getting a biological kid of his own. There you go. It was around this time when J.B. was 34. He came in contact with Pierre Jules Herzl. Herzl was the publisher of Victor Hugo, George Sand, and yes, Balzac.
0: <laughs> Balzac.
1: How have we not covered Balzac on this <laughs> show is beyond me. His name is Balzac.
0: That's exactly why we wouldn't be able to make it through five minutes <laughs> giggling.
1: And his on. name's
0: Balzac.
1: Balzac.
0: I've also actually never read anything by Balzac.
1: <laughs> anyway, it was this relationship with Herzl, Ball publisher Zach. of Balzac.
0: Balzac.
1: <laughs> that really helped launch JB's career. <laughs> Herzl and Verne collaborated on a number of works, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This was the era of J.B.'s life in which J.B. published most of his major works, including Journey to the Center of the Earth and Around the World in 80 Days. The relationship between Herzl and J.B. wasn't always great, however. Around 1869, when 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was taking shape, the two bickered like an old married couple. Originally, J.B. created Captain Nemo to be a Polish scientist who was taking vengeance out against the Ruskies, who had killed his family during the January uprising. Herzl believed the Russian market for Vern's books was big money dollars, and he did not want to lose out on that market. So he demanded that Nemo, instead, just be really pissed off at the whole slave trade thing. Because, like, who wasn't upset at that? There you go. And his reasoning was that Nemo would then be an unambiguous hero. JB fought that change tooth and nail but finally showed he's a weak man with tiny, tiny hands and compromised <laughs> by leaving Nemo's past a mystery.
0: Eh, at least until the mysterious island.
1: After this, JV basically rejected all of Herzl's ideas outright from the start. Despite the success JV had in publishing his stories, the majority of his income was still coming from stage adaptations that he still kept up with. He was doing so well that not only did he buy his first boat, the St. Michelle, but then he bought a second boat. The St. Michelle 3, or rather, St. Michel 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he then even bought a third boat. Can you guess the name?
0: Well, because you flubbed it, yeah. Was it the St. Michelle 3?
1: No, if it was the Michelle Foucault. Did <laughs> you? <laughs> ah, it was the St. Michelle 3. How about that? Yep. The boat was named after the biological kid, Michelle Verne. Aww. Which is actually weird since the kids sucked ass.
0: Aww, what?
1: Yeah, apparently JV JV, so Junior Varsity, Junior Varsity.
0: Oh, that's not confusing at all.
1: Or JV Junior or junior jv junior junior university just
0: just just say the things
1: he had a thing for having kids with underage girls and getting himself into debt
0: oh bad child
1: so jv was not having any of it to be fair though his own son was not the biggest issue in his family you see jv had a nephew named gaston no not that gaston though when jv What, what do you
0: mean no not that gaston like not the gaston from disney
1: well france yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah
0: if you hadn't said that i would have sat there going "Ah, oh, yes the gaston who courted Belle from beauty and the beast thank you for clearing Did that you up you know
1: any other gaston i know we know a, a gaston board but i only know one gaston and he happens to be french also he's from Just,
0: fine nephew gaston what he did. But not that Gaston. No, not that Gaston.
1: When JV was 58 years old and making his way home, Gaston jumped out of nowhere, shooting at JV twice. What the fuck? Hitting him in the leg. Oh no! Yeah, that left JV hobbled the rest of his life.
0: Holy shit, what the fuck, Gaston?
1: Yeah, there's no, no real motive as to why Gaston did this. It was all kept very hush hush, and the family's response was to just lock up Gaston in a mental asylum for the rest of his life. Huh. Yeah, he just kind of jumped out, shot some bullets at his uncle.
0: Like, was he just drunk or?
1: There's absolutely no reasoning. I mean, There's no backstory. The family, like, never spoke about this. Like, oh it just my happened. god, that's so weird. they're like, yeah, let's just lock this kid up. JV eventually died in 1905 at the age of 77 due to the fetus. JV lived long enough to hear ways to avoid diabetes and diabetes complications from the sweet angel on earth that is Wilfred Brimley. JV was born. Just a little too soon.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: So JV had a good bit of his work published after his death, including a novel discovered by his grandson in nineteen ninety four. No shit. Yeah, look at JV getting publication credits almost a hundred years after his death. That's impressive. That dude just never knows when to quit. Now, one thing that has to be mentioned is the issue with the translation of many of JV's text. JV, being a Frenchman, who spoke French, Wrote and published in, you guessed it, Hindi <laughs> or French.
0: As one would assume. He's also the second most translated author in the world since 1979, ranking just in between Agatha Christie and Oona Leclas William Shakespeare.
1: So there's a reason for this. Ah. So he wrote in French, and when his works were translated into English originally, publishers decided his text would do much better if they were marketed to kids. So they translated the text with that goal in mind. As such, his text in English are a vastly different reading experience than when you read it actually in French.
0: They dumbed him down?
1: The translations have been bemoaned by many critics, but I'll quote writer Michael Crichton, who observed, "Verne's prose is lean and fast-moving in a pecul- peculary, peculiar...
0: peculiar, Peculiar... shit.
1: Peculiarly. In a particular modern way... <laughs> But Verne has been ill-served by his English translators. At best, they have provided us with clunky, choppy, tone-deaf prose. At worst, as in the notorious 1872 translation of The Journey to the Center of the Earth, published by Griffin and Ferran, they have blithely altered the text, giving Verne's characters new names and adding whole pages of their own invention. Oh, God. Thus, effectively obliterating the meaning and tone of Verne's original. That's so Fucked. While publishers have begun to retranslate some of Jv's work starting in 1965, which is why he's been translated so much since the 1970s, because Ah, that's when we began to retranslate him, Got it. most people still read the original shitty translations due to them being available for free, because those are in the public domain, while the versions retranslated after 1965 are not. Thanks, Disney. (laughs) Which is a story for another episode.
0: Oh, yeah. Gosh. That could be a good study break episode, actually.
1: I will end... This summary of JV by quoting Ono Laquasalam, Brad Rayberry. That's not what. N- <laughs> we are all, in one way or another, the children of Jules Burn. In short, Ray Ray thought JV was laying the fucking pipe. The end. The,
0: the fucking pipe for. Science fiction and and literary stuff, not 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 like we're we're all the
1: children. No, Jules Verne fucked all our moms. (sighs) Fuck your mom. Fuck my mom. Fuck your mom's mom.
0: Okay, so while that is a really lovely quote that you made horrible, uh, by Ray Bradbury, Jules Verne was actually pretty iffy at the notion of being like uh, considered a sort of sci-fi writer because. He actually contended there was really no sigh and that it was all just fi. And that like, you no, know, you guys, you really shouldn't like take any of this serious science fiction. I'm just a dude in a library talking to a lot of folks. And similarly, people have tried to hail him as a prophet of scientific progress because of all the shit he predicted in his books. And people were doing that even when he was alive. And And he was just like, no, I just researched and took notes and shit before I wrote anything so that he could explain it well and write about it as well as he could. And I guess he just wanted to be recognized for that. So when the novel was originally published in 1869, it was done in a serial format, as a lot of these tend to be, as we've kind of been finding out. And the reason that that's worth noting is because it accounts for what is a largely episodic plot, which means that when you kind of read it as one full novel, the pacing sucks which you'll see hey everybody it's Megan and today's episode like always is brought to you by our sweet sexy rapidly growing list of patrons I mean you know sexy in an appropriate way in a in a workplace professional way, these patrons are Kiki, Alexander, Melina, Ariel at Ariel Teague, Chris at Play Comics, Florian, Ben at K S J M, Camilla, Aries, Lucas, Brandon, Nalone Podcast at Nalon Pod, Amy W. Yeah, that's right. We got two Amy's now. Amy W. and Amy B. Shit's popping off. We also got two Sarah's too, Sarah C and Sarah R. It's it's getting wild. You're that pra- Pravi agrees. It's getting wild up in here. We also got Samariel S- Samariel. that you know they still haven't told me yet. Kendall, Morgan, Cheryl, Karen, Pseudobred, Wendy, Sam, Jen, Aaron, Jared, Dirk Dammit at Killing You Guy, Lonnie at La- Lanyan, Janet. Tanner, and Katie. Thank you guys for supporting the show and just being objectively great. This the platonic ideal of awesome. This week's pod pals are Lindsay and Daniel, hosts of the show 33% Pulp, which has just the best premise ever, where Daniel, Lindsay, and a guest each read a different third of some horrific pulpy novel and then they sort of like over the course of three episodes recap it to each other and and try to piece together the plot like a a horrific game of telephone where there are giant crabs everywhere somehow it's such a good show you guys it's so it's such a good concept and it's hilarious and you should absolutely check it out
1: Hey, Lindsay, are you ever curious about those old books with weird covers in the bargain bins? Oh my god, yes. Hey, Daniel, would you be in a book club where no one reads the whole book? Funny you ask, because that's our show, 33% Pulp. You, I, and a guest host each read a different third of a pulp novel and then recap the whole thing together. We start with context, the author, genre, themes, and so on. By the end of the third episode, you'll have heard the main plot, our commentary, and confusion. And sometimes we have companion episodes with related content from beyond the book with other podcasts. We're 33% pulp and 100% hopeful you'll join us. Bye!
0: So, hold your breath. Grab the nearest Canadian and get ready to dive into 20,000 leagues under the sea. Our story begins with these accounts of strange ocean happenings between 1866 to 1867 as sailors encounter some weird big glowing thing in the water that might have been like a moving reef, it might have been Moby Dick, it definitely rammed the living fuck out of a couple boats and punched a hole right in them and everyone was just like mm-hmm. something must be done about the threat of this sea monster menace smash cut to nebraska yes the landlocked state of nebraska <laughs> where a french scientist slash narrator professor anorax anorax is doing field research for stuff we learned that he wrote this book called mysteries of the ocean deeps so i don't know what he expects to find out in corn country and neither does he because he goes to New York to catch a boat home to France. Only before that happens, he learns about the latest sea monster attack, with some people claiming that it's not a sea monster at all, but perhaps some kind of boat that travels underwater, sub the surface, among the marine. Like some kind of
1: submarine. Oh, a U-boat. Those fucking Nazis. Those
0: goddamn Nazis at it again. But Aranax assures the reader that anyone who thinks that is a certified farm-grown dumbass, and as an ocean expert, he happily tells journalists that the mysterious creature is definitely a narwhal.
1: Unicorn of the sea.
0: Indeed. And everyone kind of flips out, and they're just like, the, the idea of Moby Dick was bad enough before he had, like, a fucking shiv coming out of his face? So they get on this, like, we need to kill this thing, like, yesterday.
1: So you know narwhals? Yeah. Completely April Fool's prank. Well, people did beg. They took manatees and they strapped dildos to their head. You've
0: watched planet Earth. You've
1: seen. That.
0: <laughs> Damn it. Now I'm thinking of a manatee with a dildo on its head.
1: <laughs> They're the cows of the sea. <sighs> the big cuddly gray they,
0: bobs. They are though. They sound like poop. They do though. Anyway, an American captain named, not Ahab, but Farragut, takes the initiative, putting together a whaling party and inviting Adirondack to come along so he can watch them harpoon the shit out of one of nature's rare and majestic creatures. And Aranax is like, ah, oh, but I miss my beautiful homeland of France. But yeah, okay. So Aranax and his weird little Flemish manservant named Conceal come along for the ride. Yeah, no big deal. Just a manservant he's had for ten years who follows him around and does whatever he wants and only refers to Aronnax in the third person as master. It's not weird. So they set sail on the Abraham Lincoln, because Vern was like, okay, what's the most American thing I can name this ship after? To show that it's American. Maybe the SS Freedom Eagle. Or Abraham Lincoln. That works too. Uh, but enough about the Americans. Also aboard the ship is the Canadian, Ned Land who's Canadian. Ned is a master harpooner, and he has three chief character traits. Whiny, stabby, Canadian.
1: Sorry. Ned does not
0: say sorry. Ned is is sorry for nothing. When I read this as a kid, I pictured Ned Land as Wolverine, because angry and Canadian, and rereading it as an adult, honestly, as you'll see, it holds up. Anyway, Ned is excited to stab whatever the ocean has to offer, but is skeptical about Aranex's claims that it's a narwhal, saying that there's nothing flesh-based in the sea that could put a hole in the side of a metal ship, which, like, yeah, fair point. But Acuvax is a prideful, petty little shit, and basically tells Ned that he's stupid, and he tries to make himself feel better by reminding himself that he is a fine Frenchman, and stupid Ned is only French-Canadian. So there. It's a thing. I don't know. I'm not here to get between the French and the French Canadians.
1: Québécois.
0: <laughs> Thank you for your
1: contribution. <laughs> oh, I am from Canada. Yep, but that's... I speak the French. Fr- I, lo- I love, I love the hockey. The
0: hockey. The hockey. <laughs> Three long narwhalless months later, and everyone is getting reasonably cranky and wants to go home. Captain Farragut asked for just three more days, and while three measly days really shouldn't make any kind of difference if they haven't found anything in 90, of course, on the night of the second day, the beast is spotted. How is it spotted at night, you may ask?
1: It glows in the dark.
0: Yes, you, you are correct. It glows in the dark, but not in, like, the ghostly Davy Jones way, but in, like, a modern electric way.
1: Like an eel. <laughs> Boogaloo.
0: Boogaloo. Boogaloo. <laughs> Captain Farragut sees this and he comes to two conclusions. The first being, I'm not kidding here, electric narwhal. The second, fuck no, I'm not fighting an electric narwhal at night. And then he turns the ship around and, and just fucks right off. And it follows them all night, very quickly, blowing steams of water into the air in a way that Aranax has never seen like a whale do.
1: Why would he not fight him at night if the thing fucking goes in the dark? It's pretty easy to see. Because it
0: freaks him out. He wants to do it in the daylight, when it's not spooky.
1: Let your balls drop, guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell Captain Farragut that.
1: (laughs) Let your balls drop, bro. Wait, wait, wee. -wee,
0: And And then comes morning, and that means time for exotic marine life murder. So now they're chasing the creature, which has also now turned around and fucked right off. And they catch up to it, and Ned hurls a harpoon at it, and it's a direct hit! Except... It missed. I just said it was a direct hit. Except... Except...
1: Right in its mouth, and it ate it.
0: Except it bounces off of it somehow. And before he has the chance to say, what the fuck, eh? The creature releases several more massive bursts of water, slamming into the ship and knocking our narrator slash least interesting person, Professor Aranax, into the water, where he flails around like the useless academic he is. He starts to drown, but is pulled back up by Conceal, who was not also thrown into the water, but jumped in on his own, because Conceal is just ride or die that way. He tears off both their clothes, not for sexy reasons, but because they were weighing them down. It can be both. It can be both. And they both try screaming for help, but the ship seems long gone. They start to sink beneath the waves, only to come up against something hard. Something rising. Oh, Viagra. <laughs> it's the creature! Except it's not a creature, it's a big metal boat. That's risen just to the surface and sitting on top of it is a stranded Ned land there to say I fucking told you so asshole Aaron acts is glad he's not dead, but he's very annoyed to be proven wrong by a Canadian Three of them were left sitting on top of the ship for hours until Ned throws a hissy fit and stamps his feet up and down And someone pops up from a hatch and is like, oh Fuck and goes right back down then reopens it and a bunch of dudes come out and drag Aaron Hansen, Ned and conceal down below They get thrown to cell and Ned flips and pulls one of the what I presume are many different knives hidden on his person, screaming that they've been kidnapped by cannibals and he's going to stab them all. And Aaron acts as like, dude, really, what? No. Now who's being crazy and also wrong? It's you! You stupid, stupid Canadian! And two dudes suddenly walk in and stare them down.
1: Licking their lips.
0: Sure. Uh... You look
1: tasty, friend. <laughs>
0: Aaron Axolotl notices that the first man is short and powerful but devotes like 10 more adjectives to the second man who is tall and noble with dark piercing eyes and swarthy features and and he's hot. It's okay, man. You can say it. He's He's a straight hottie. If Moby Dick has taught us anything, it's that the ocean is full of two things. Unfulfilled angst vengeance, which we'll get to, and hot dudes. And manatees. And manatees. With dildos on their head. Yep. Aranax and the gang try speaking French, English, and German to the two guys and get nothing in response. And then they leave. Ned decides they must be assholes, but Aranax says they could just be Spanish or Turkish or maybe Indian. Some kind of brown that doesn't speak any of their languages. Then a different guy comes in and brings them food and clothes because, in case you forgot, Aranax and Conceal have been butt-ass naked this whole time. Sitting out on top of the ship with Ned? Nude. Getting manhandled into a cell? Totally freeballing it. Telling Ned to put down the knife? Starkly, utterly, naked. Thank you, Jules Verne. Shrinkage. (laughs) Yeah, probably.
1: (laughs) Guys, guys. (laughs) I was in
0: the pool! I was in the ocean! ocean! (laughs) But they're clothed and fed now, and this makes them a little more optimistic about their survival.
1: You guys want to check it now? It's warmed up. (laughs) It's warmed up now.
0: (laughs) Except Ned. He wants to break out and escape, but... Aranax points out that they're underwater now and that that's stupid. So Ned's next plan is breaking out of their cell somehow and murdering everyone to take over the ship. They don't even know how many fucking people are on the ship. It's just, you know, versus Ned the angry Canadian, Aranax the scientist, and Conceal the weird little manservant. And Aranax is like, hey, Ned, maybe take a time out, okay, buddy? Like, take a nap or something, Jesus. Still, Aerosnax is pretty nervous. Conceal's not, though. Kinseal really hasn't been nervous at all this entire time, even when he was naked. Especially while he was naked. Conceal is basically down for whatever. He fears nothing, and I'm kinda scared of him. Finally, someone comes in and lets them out, and Ned immediately tries to choke slam them, and Conceal has to pull him off the poor guy. Standing beside his dude and safely out of choke slamming distance is that really hot, ambiguously brown man from earlier who, in perfect French, Commands Ned to chill the fuck out and tells the other two nerds to listen up. First, he tells them that, yeah, obviously, he does speak French and English and German and also Latin just to be extra and that he and his friends were fucking with them earlier. So Ned was actually right about that. They were just being assholes. He goes on to say that he's really pissed that these three are on his sub because the whole reason he even has the sub is to avoid people because people suck. But since they sort of accidentally ended up there, he won't murder them but he also can't let them leave and tell people about his cool submarine. So they have to stay on board, probably forever. But they can wander around and look at all his cool science shit, which there is a lot of, so like, hey, prisoners with benefits.
1: Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, you'll see.
0: And so he goes to give them a tour of his sub, which is called the Nautilus, and Aaron acts as like, but wait, what's your name? And he goes, I am Nemo. Nemo, Nemo. Not, not quite like that. And he
1: tilts side to side.
0: Yeah. Nemo. <laughs> no. Nemo. No, he says, he says it way more coolly than that.
1: Oh my god, you're named after Daffy. Dafee. Daffy. My
0: son Nemo! <laughs> so no, he, he's not a fan of the classic Pixar film, but he, he says it because Nemo is Latin for no one, and the captain is too much of a fucking drama queen to just say, like, none of your business, nerd. None yeah. But that's just kind of the extra-ass dude that Nemo is. He tells the internet that he literally built the sub himself by ordering all the different parts separately from different companies under different fake names and assembling them on his own desert island workshop that he built expressly for that purpose. And then, once the Nautilus was finished, he burned the workshop to the ground. So yeah, he's he's just kind of like that.
1: Didn't keep any extra parts, guy? Nope. You know, I played it up <laughs> Oregon Trail to know, if a tongue breaks and you ain't got a tongue... You would be waiting for a long time, friend.
0: Nemo thinks he's too good for that shit. And so begins Aranax, Conceal, and Ned's adventures aboard the Nautilus. A lot of it is very boring. Like, you know, some of it is cool and involves murdering large undersea animals, but way more of it is about how Nemo is really smart and also cultured and likes art and reads lots of books. And then he and Nectie talk about electricity and measurements and sodium harvested from underwater coal mines, and I don't care. Then Nemo goes away for a while and our intrepid trio mostly just hang out, eat, look at Nemo's cool fish artifacts and talk about different kinds of fish and which fish taste the best. Occasionally, Ned suggests murdering Nemo and the crew so they can escape. It's boring. But then, Nemo just shows back up again and instead of any attempted explanation, he's just like, hey, wanna go hunting in an underwater forest wearing futuristic 19th century scuba gear with dope-ass guns that shoot balls of electricity with me? Sure. Yeah, fuck yeah, they do. Except, Ned, surprisingly, he's too freaked out about the scuba gear that even the promise of getting to kill something isn't enough. So he stays behind, which begs the question. Since all he talks about is trying to escape, what what is his plan when they're like under a, a general, you know, not 20,000 leagues, but a, a non-specific number of leagues beneath the sea? Like was he just going to swim for it and try to hold his breath really good? Well, but whatever, intrepid scientist Aranax is down to explore and Conceal don't give a fuck about literally anything, so he comes to. And they walk around in seaweed for a while. Nemo kills a sea otter and at one point there are sharks that Nemo points to that are really far away and don't actually do anything at all. And then they go back inside and Jules Verne is giving me fucking adventure blue balls. Like I said, when I, when I rented this book as a child of 12 and or 13, I was told that there would be giant sea monsters and dudes stabbing said giant sea monsters. And and that's, that's what I signed up for. Squid stabbing. Not long, gentle walks around seaweed forests and discussions about engineering and maritime navigation. You know, I, I get that Jules Verne really wants to explain how the Nautilus works and how the ocean oceans to show that he did his homework. But I was a dumb kid with a short attention span. And I'm a dumb adult with an even shorter attention span and I demand some sick aquatic action scenes. And what I get is Nemo talking about how the sea is magical and deadly but also full of life and awesome while Aranax gets lost in his eyes. And then nothing happens again. And then the Nautilus gets trapped on a reef, and while Nemo figures out what to do about it, he actually lets his trio of prisoners and or pals out ashore on land, and Ned basically has an orgasm the second his Tootsies touch down on the dirt. They're all pretty stoked to oh. eat some oh. Yep, oh. like that. They're all pretty stoked to eat some non ocean related food like coconuts and bananas. The coconuts.
1: <laughs> Consider the
0: trees. <laughs> Another Moana heavy episode. The <laughs> it's been Don't too long. Yes, uh, so the coconuts are very good, but Ned wants land meat. Unfortunately, his hunt for wild animals leads them to a group of cannibals who also want land meat. Ned land meat. Well, hey. up, 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 up. Come on, that was a good one. But yeah, no, nah, it uh, it wouldn't be a rollicking old timey adventure story without some savage cannibal islanders. Obviously, gotta be racist at something and the gang runs back to the boat to escape them. The ship is still stuck on the reef within spitting distance of the island but Nemo doesn't really care and he just like plays the organ.
1: So spitting distance how's that compared to an Aaron Rodgers throw? <laughs>
0: It's about, uh, roughly three quarters of an Aaron Rodgers throw. That's pretty far spit. I know. Is this an
1: Aaron Rodgers spit, or is an Aaron Rodgers spit different than your spit? I've
0: never seen Aaron Rodgers spit. I can't speak to it. Aaron X looks at the natives and calls them monkeys and savages and all that other fun stuff. Conceal, who continues to be such an utterly inscrutable weirdo, is like, "Eh, Cannibals are people. Some are probably chill. Just like some civilized people are assholes. Except then, one of the natives throws a rock at Conceal and breaks a really cool shell he found, and Conceal flips out and tries to shoot him. (laughs) So, like, who knows what's going on in that little dude's head. The cannibal? No, (laughs) Conceal. Eventually, the tide rises, and they go on their way. Things are boring for a while again, until one day, Nemo gathers uh, the three of them and tells them that they have to be captives for realsies again, but just for a little while, pinky promise... He seems really, really pissed about something that's probably related to the situation and puts the gang back in a cell. The three men want to be mad, but hey, lunch is already there waiting for them, so that's cool.
1: Manatee!
0: Except, pretty much. <laughs> Except, wait, lunch was drugged, and then they all pass
1: out. Oh, like the island of Dr. Moreau. Or Fantasy Island. Which island's the <laughs> one here always drugging him?
0: Oh, definitely not Fantasy Island! <laughs> You're thinking of, like, the prisoner, I think? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ <laughs> Aaron X wakes back up in his own room And walks out to find Ned and Concile. They wander the sub but it seems weirdly empty Until Nemo appears looking exhausted And in pretty bad shape He asks Aeronautics and Space Museum if he's a doctor He says yeah kinda I mean like you know close enough and then leads him to where an injured crew member is lying with his skull broken and part of his literal, actual brain exposed. And Aaron is like, I don't know what you expect me to be able to do about this.
1: Can he still fuck?
0: <laughs> Can he still fuck? <laughs> he informs Nemo that the crewman tragically cannot still fuck and will be but dead. But we got a
1: scene to shoot later. <laughs> I think we afford all this stuff.
0: he says he will be dead in a few hours and he asks how how did this happen anyway and does it have anything to do with why we were drugged in a cell yesterday and and Nemo just goes no engine part pop popped off the engine hit him in the head just you know whacked him right on the noggin it's crazy stop asking me things the next day Aaron X accompanies Nemo for another underwater scuba walk through a giant coral forest where they bury the crew member in a special underwater cemetery nemo has specifically for underwater burials of crewmen like you do
1: you got to do something with them you know like nasa's like ready to bury people in space right they gotta make them come back with the body
0: it's true so they gotta oh i assume they like shoot them off into space and in like the sunglasses case like at the end of uh the star trek where spock dies Aaron X puts a romantic spin on it like, oh, you're making sure they get a true burial and their bodies are like kept away from sharks and stuff. To which Nemo responds, yes, sharks and men. And he does not elaborate on this further.
1: Those fucking cannibals. Can't <laughs> want to meet
0: them. Yeah, under the water.
1: You ain't getting a free Those uh,
0: underwater cannibals that are such a problem. Oh, if you don't
1: bury the body, <laughs> it's going to float to the top. I don't know if you don't have bodies for it.
0: I guess. Then we get a lot of nothing again with Ned wanting to escape, again, and Aranax telling him no, we're near India, and should wait till we're closer to Europe, but actually he's just stalling, because he's basically living his ocean scientist fantasy life right now, and he can give a fuck about stupid Canadian Ned and his desire to return to stupid Canada. Nemo offers to take the gang pearl diving, and for once, Ned agrees to come.
1: Why? Whoa! There we going. coming for pearls? Uh, yeah.
0: Ned wants to come pretty much just because there's a chance that there might be sharks and he's itching to get his stab on. Nemo goes on for a bit about the plight of, like, poor Indian pearl divers who have to make their living doing this shitty, dangerous thing, but, like, it's okay. It's too early in the pearl season for them to be out, so it's not like they're stealing from them or something, even though I really don't think Aaron Ax and the gang give a shit about the ethics of pearl collecting. Anyway, they head out, they find a giant oyster and a pearl the size of a fucking coconut, but whatever, who cares? We're finally gonna get a goddamn action scene, so an Indian man dives past them, apparently not noticing them somehow. And he's there to do some pearl hunting after all when suddenly a shark appears. Can I get it a good like dun dun
1: dun? Except he's already there.
0: <laughs> yes, just like that. And then everyone freezes and the shark heads straight for the diver. But then Nemo's just like... Fuck that! And he launches himself at the shark and he stabs it in the stomach. Except all that really did was piss it off and make him want to tear Nemo to bits now instead. And Nemo tries to fight the shark single handedly because that's how he do, And he is definitely going to die when who else but Ned, motherfucking O Canada Land, manages to harpoon the shark in the heart and kill it, saving Nemo. Yeah! Nemo rescues the Indian diver, who had lost consciousness, deposits him on dry land, and even gives him some pearls. Aranax is like, I have never seen you be nice to someone literally ever. And Nemo proclaims, and I quote, that Indian, doctor, is the inhabitant of an oppressed country. I am his compatriot, and shall remain so to my very last breath. Aranax chooses not to read into this. Nemo, meanwhile, thanks Ned for not letting a shark kill him, and Ned's like, yeah, whatever, shut up, this doesn't make us friends, I hate you. Ooh, alright. So that got the old blood pumping. Got some shark fighting. Got some tragic backstory hints. Hell yeah. You know what it's time for? People eating? No. Football throwing?
1: No. It is. This Sunday, 1pm, CBS. (laughs) America's Most Watched Network, Packers.
0: This doesn't come out till next week.
1: Oh, shit. Week 2, CBS, 1pm.
0: It's time for nothing. Yep. We're back just submarine along and Aranax being impressed with how cool the Nautilus is, and then that Nemo knows a super secret shortcut to the Mediterranean, and I'm already skipping ahead, and the most interesting thing is that Ned almost dies trying to harpoon a manatee, because he's a fucking idiot. And then Nemo takes Aranax out on another undersea jaunt to the fallen city of Atlantis, which sounds like it should be cool, but is just like a pile of fucking rocks. It's just like here's some rocks. More time passes, the sub keeps subbing, and they're so far out in open water that Ned can't even whine about escaping. Then, suddenly, they hit the polar ice caps, and Nemo's all, We're gonna travel under them, and it's gonna be rad as hell, unless the sub gets stuck, in which case we will all suffocate and die. But they don't, and they end up in the South Pole, and Nemo's just, like, stoked as fuck. And he and Arrow, Xlax and Conceal step out onto the ice and fuck around and look at penguins and stuff. And Conceal's like, I'm glad Ned didn't come, because he would have murdered every animal. And wants to defend him, but like, nah, he right. Then Nemo sticks a flag in the snow with a big N on it. And claims the South Pole in the name of Captain Nemo and calls it a day. Thumbs up. Way to conquer the shit out of those penguins. He just does that. He just a flag with a big fucking N on it. And it's just like, this is mine now. I own the South Pole.
1: That's it. It belongs to him. Yeah. Those are the Izzard of Laws. It's
0: true. They're the Izzard Accords. <laughs> the ship leaves the South Pole. And then there's a big old crash suddenly. And Nemo finds the trio. And he's the most anxious looking they've ever seen him. Which is never. Because he's never anxious. And he tells them that, yeah, it's just no big deal. And probably fine. And totally don't worry. But we're trapped under the ice. And we'll probably all suffocate and die. There is some good news, though. They might get crushed to death before they have the chance to suffocate. Sweet! They all work to pickaxe through the ice and shifts, but they're slowly running out of air, and Conceal's like, Oh, I wish I could make it so I breathed less so there could be more air left for you, master. And honestly, at this point, I'm more surprised that he doesn't just, like, do that. Finally, just as they're running out of oxygen, they make it out, and everybody gets to breathe a little easier. hey 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 Eh. Eh. and then back to nothing yay conceal gets stung by a fish and he gets mad and he kills and eats the fish out of spite even though it apparently tastes really bad because if you haven't figured it out by now conceals fucking weird the nautilus is close to the bahamas now and oh my god oh my god you guys rj rj it's time it's time, do you know?
1: It is time. After
0: 42 ba, 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 ba. fucking chapters, it's finally goddamn time. Motherfucking giant squid attack! It's from outer space. No. It, it's from the ocean.
1: Oh, well, it was put there.
0: Don't harsh space. my squid buzz! And actually, it's not even one giant squid, it's seven giant squids. And Nemo's gonna punch them all to death because he's insane. I mean, okay, actually it's because his fancy lightning ball guns can't penetrate that hashtag thick squid skin. So the only way to take them out and protect the ship is to go out and do some stabbing. And Ned is down to stab some squid and get out all that pent-up aggression. Except.
1: Except
0: except that the second they surface, one of the squids fucking yanks off the hatch and just starts getting his tentacles all up in the sub, grabbing, like, crewmen and shit, and Nemo hacks at it with an axe, and then more giant squid come, and one grabs a crewman and, like, drags him off the boat, and he's screaming for help, and Nemo goes fucking berserk, slicing off tentacles to try to get at the crewman, while Ned is just stabbing right alongside him, and Anrax and Conceal are presumably watching from under a table. Or maybe Conceal is riding one of the squid, like you can never tell with that guy. And then, and then, one of the squids spews a jet of ink and it fucks everyone up and Ned loses his footing and falls right near its huge fucking squid beak that's poised to take a big bite out of his fucking Canadian bacon when Nemo slides in and jams his axe between its fucking jaws, giving Ned time to grab his harpoon and stab it through all three, count them three, of its hearts. Boom. All the squids are dead. Everybody's covered in ink and blood. And Ned thanks Nemo for saving him. And Nemo's like, whatever. I was just paying you back for the shark thing. Shut up. This doesn't make us friends. I hate you. Fuck, dude. Hell yeah. Ahab ain't got shit on that. I need a cigarette. Like, fuck. Whew. All right. Pack it up. We're done here. I'm RJ. Okay, not really. There's actually, there's there's still five more chapters left. But mm. uh, nothing's going to top that shit, just so you know. Anyway, things get kind of weird after that. Nemo gets all withdrawn again, and the Nautilus just drifts aimlessly. And soon it's off the coast of North Carolina, and Ned is losing his mind like, That's America! Which is practically Canada! Like, we need to go now! And he tells Aranax to go, like, put his big boy pants on, and just straight tell Nemo to let them go. Notice that Ned isn't the one doing it. He's telling Aronnax to do it. So Aranax goes to Nemo's cabin and is like, hey, can we go? And Nemo says, no. And Aranax tells him that Ned's going screwy and that he might do something dangerous if Nemo doesn't let them go. And Nemo says, he really doesn't give a shit what Ned does. And Aranax is like, well, you never said we couldn't escape. And Nemo's like, I sure didn't. Now fuck off and leave me alone. I'm brooding. And that's kind of that. Ned goes back to plan A escape, but it's too stormy and they can't. Meanwhile, the Nautilus swims around in circles, and Anorax is like, Hmm, it's almost as if he's looking for something specific. Hmm, strange. And he is. And he finds it. And it's a warship. And Aranax is like, what, why? And Nemo is like, VENGEANCE! And Aranax, stupid, stupid, dumbass Aranax, only just now realizes that Nemo has been attacking ships on purpose, and that when he drugged them all and put them in a cell, it was so that he could go sink a ship without them getting in the way duh the warship attacks first probably recognizing the nautilus as that electric narwhal thing that keeps attacking ships and aranax is like oh my god they're shooting at us what the fuck are we gonna do and nemo's like we're gonna go below decks and i'm gonna sink that bitch and aranax tries to talk him out of it and nemo screams and i quote i am the law i am the justice i am the oppressed and they are the oppressor it is because of them that everything i loved cherished venerated Country, wife, children, parents, perished as I watched. Everything I hate is there. Keep quiet. And so Aaron X keeps quiet. I am the law.
1: That's what happens <laughs> out there in international waters. It's
0: true. And Nemo sinks that bitch. And Anorak's sweater, Conceal, and Ned watch in horror as the warship goes down beneath the waves. And then Captain Nemo calmly retreats to his room, with Aranax sneakily following him and spying like a creep while Nemo looks at a picture of a woman and two children and cries. Tragic backstory. I mean, he did also just kill a bunch of dudes. There's there's really no way around that, but still. Tragic backstory. Finally, sickened by Nemo's actions, Aranax agrees to Ned's umpteenth plea for escape. The night they plan to leave, Aranax hears Nemo playing the organ and tries to sneak past him, but Nemo sees him, and that, you know, he's clearly trying to leave. He doesn't stop him, though. He just quietly says, Enough. Enough. And Aranax leaves. But as he, Ned, and Conceal are grabbing a dinghy to escape, crewmen start running towards them screaming, and Ned suddenly has, like, three knives, and they prepare to fight, but actually, the crewmen don't give a shit about them. They're freaking out and screaming about a maelstrom. Disney ride? No. A giant whirlpool storm thing that happens much like the end of Moby Dick. And Anorax can't believe that Nemo would make the mistake of heading straight into it by accident. And as he's thinking about that, the dinghy gets yanked off the sub and Anorax is knocked out by a convenient conk on the head. He wakes up in the cabin of some fishermen off the coast of Norway with Ned and Conceal, waiting for a ferry that they can catch a lift on. How? Eh, I don't know. Don't worry about it. Maybe Conceal carried them all on his back and swam like a fucking dolphin. Who knows. They're pretty sure the Nautilus is at the bottom of the sea and Nemo along with it. Anorax writes down all their adventures and finds himself hoping that Nemo is somehow alive and hopefully less murdery too. The
1: end. That's not how the French would say it.
0: Living. There you go. Wee And that's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Kind of a rip adventure. Like one quarter of a rip adventure. So, sequels, adaptations, etc., in 1874, Verne wrote The Mysterious Island, a weird kind of crossover sequel for 20,000 Leagues and uh, an earlier novel called In Search of Castaways. It has its own cast of characters, but a character from Castaways named Ayrton factors in pretty heavily. And then eventually Nemo shows up as an old man living on an island blowing up pirates, so like, that's kind of cool. And that's also when we unlock his super secret tragic backstory and we learn he's like a deposed, exiled Indian prince and that he was the victim of British colonization. And that's why he likes helping out oppressed people and uh, ship murder, I guess. In terms of adaptations, so, like, I know we mentioned the unfortunate and very terrible 2003 League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie literally one episode ago, but... It's from League. Captain Nemo is... Nemo. He's also in it. And at least he's actually fucking played by an Indian dude, actor Nasiruddin Shah. Which is more than we could say for almost every other adaptation ever. I know I also keep talking about the bad movie, but, like, there's also the very good Leave Extraordinary Gentleman, like, graphic novel the movie's based on. So, I mean, that's worth checking out, but, uh... Is he
1: an Indian in that? Yes. Oh, there you go.
0: But, yeah, no, it it has been chiefly adapted as a radio play, like, a bunch, and roughly 10,000 times as a comic book and a graphic novel, which, you know, it's a pretty visual story that would cut out a lot of the, the extra bits not all of these comics, but most of them, portray Nemo as either a white dude who basically looks like Doctor Strange from Silver Age Marvel Comics, or a weird, ambiguously European, potentially non-white person, but definitely not in a brown way. And movies! So, the one that's considered the definitive film adaptation was a live-action film made by Disney in 1954, starring Paul Lucas as Professor Aranax, Peter Lore as Conceal, Kirk Douglas as the uh, consummate Canadian Ned Land, And James Mason as Captain Nemo. James Mason is from everything, but I I know him from the Hitchcock movie North by Northwest and Eddie Izzard doing an impression of him whenever he does the voice of God because it sounds impressive. And yes, James Mason was a white dude. People fucking loved this movie because the giant squid in it looked really, really good for 1954. They creamed their jeans for the squid and the movie took home the Academy Award for Best Art Direction and Best Special Effects. Anyway, here, this is the fun part. In all various sundry film and TV adaptations, Captain Nemo has been played by 14 white dudes, including Michael Caine and Patrick Stewart, but wearing a turban. That's admittedly in the TV movie version of The Mysterious Island, but I'm counting it.
1: Master Wine, I'm Nemo. <laughs> you can Naimo. call my
0: Captain Nemo, Master Wine. <laughs> I swore I wouldn't let another member of the Wayne family on the Nautilus. <laughs> Nemo. So, so 14 white dudes, Omar Sharif, who was Egyptian, Jose Ferrer, who was Puerto Rican, and in the TV series Once Upon a Time by Ferran Tahir, an American actor of Pakistani descent, which is better, I guess? I know that both Indian and Pakistani people aren't super hot on the thought of being interchangeable, but I suppose it's like a step up from Michael fucking Kane. <laughs> So there you go. Your most racially faithful representations of Vern's iconic, canonically Indian character are from Once Upon a Time, a show that mixes shit like Elsa and Anna from Frozen with Victor Frankenstein where Captain Hook is a sexy, twinkin' guyliner, and Leave, Extraordinary Gentlemen, a movie where Dorian Gray's painting makes him immune to bullets, The Invisible Man's invisibility makes him immune to bullets, and Sean Connery's character Alan Quatermain, is not immune to bullets, but is brought back to life by a magical shaman because Africa won't let him die. Representation, everybody! Also, there's an anime in the early 90s that was very, very loosely inspired by the novel called Nadia and the Secret of the Blue Water.
1: Shocking. Are there tentacles?
0: I don't know. I haven't watched it. I want to watch it. It's supposed to be really good, actually. In which two kids, Nadia, an acrobat, and Jean, or I guess Jean, probably, an inventor, and a bunch of jewel thieves go on an adventure with Captain Nemo aboard the Nautilus and fight evil beings called Neo-Atlanteans, and, like, that sounds pretty dope. It was the brainchild of two anime heavyweights, the great director, Hayao Miyazaki, and Hideki Anno, uh, one of the founding members of Studio Gainix. It only ran for, like, 30-some-odd episodes, but was very critically acclaimed. Yeah, that's about it for that.
1: So. The science in the book sucks. <laughs> now, people have complained about this. Critics say, you know, the, the, nothing that is portrayed in this book was real at the time. has not been real since. <laughs> yeah, Jules Verne. I know Megan said he did his homework. He was a bad studier.
0: Well, maybe for this book, but people keeps saying that he's like, oh, he predicted so much scientific progress so maybe he did it in other books.
1: Yeah, he did not understand submarines.
0: (laughs) Well, to be fair, again, he was the one who said, there ain't no psi in my fi. So, he was protecting his ass from the fact that he didn't know anything about submarines. There you go. (laughs) In which case, why the fuck did I have to read about them so much? So, RJ. What's up? 20,000 leagues under the sea. Good or bad? Don't say hentai. If you say hentai, I'll fucking kill you.
1: There's a lot of action. That's good. You have a uh, racial minority that's presented, well...
0: Who's presented as the sexy, interesting anti-hero.
1: There you go. (laughs) I wish JV had stuck to his guns and had this whole, like, ruski take that thing on thing. I don't know about this other guy. Herzl wanted to make it about the slave trade.
0: It ended up just being, like, I hate People, people. I stand for oppressed people everywhere because I come from a, a place that has been heavily colonized by the British. But we don't get that till seven years later. <laughs> Anything else?
1: I always like Sequest. <laughs> and without this book, I'm not sure Sequest could have happened.
0: I don't know, man. I really don't know. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ.
1: Twenty thousand weeks around the sea. They're
0: not going around the fucking sea. They're going around in the sea. They're going around, yeah, they're going around the world in the sea. Yeah. More specifically, under it. No,
1: they're in the sea. The sea's not the top. Fine,
0: under the surface of the sea. Mm.
1: So, your thoughts?
0: The parts that I like, I really like. Because I, I remember reading it as a kid and skipping a lot. Because I was like, boring, 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 boring. And coming back to it, as an adult, same. It's really weirdly paced. And, you know, in all fairness, that's because the it was originally a serial. People were reading it in installments. They were getting, you know, what, what wacky shit are they up to this time? And it can be kind of tedious reading it as a novel that way. But, you know, the action scenes are dope. Aranax isn't particularly likable or interesting, but Nemo is awesome, Ned is obnoxious but entertaining, Conceal is fucking strange, and Nemo could kill- like, if I had to pick, if I was hanging out with, like, Captain Ahab or Captain Nemo, like, Captain Nemo, ten times out of ten, he could kick Ahab's fucking ass. When Nemo sets out to do a thing, he fucking does it, whereas Ahab is just an angry punk bitch. I mean, it's not something that I'm going to be like, yes, I lo- love it. We'll, we'll read it again and again for always. But maybe, like, go back and just read the squid murder scene because it's so fucking good. That's that's my hot take. There you go. And that'll about do it for us on this episode of Ono Lit Class. If you want to continue to follow our adventures, the easiest way to do that is by subscribing to us on iTunes or whatever... Podcatcher thing, and also you know while you're there, well leave us a review, leave us a rating. It's good, we like it. It helps us. Follow us on Twitter at pod Like us on Facebook. Join the Facebook group. It's always popping in there, and you can find us anywhere, everywhere. Wherever good podcasts are sold, except not sold because we're free, but also if you feel like giving us money because you love us, you can pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash and get sweet prizes like t-shirts, stickers, posters, bonus content and mini and the ability to vote on what we do next. Like this episode and almost all the ones before, like a bunch of the ones before it that weren't like guest stuff, were all voted on by listeners. So you do, you can do that. Do that thing. Do that nasty thing, you. I'm sorry. The next episode will be on September 26th. Until then, I'm Megan.
1: I am RJ. Okay. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Ta.
0: you're just looking at pop culture sharks. I'm going to take your fucking internet away again. That
1: way, but friendly shark from Captain Planet. Get off
0: the internet. <laughs> wow, that shark. <laughs> That's a dumbass looking shark. All right, you know what? Alright, rj's fucking derailed the show, but you know what? He's not wrong. It doesn't look like a shark. No, it doesn't. It I don't know what it looks like. It looks like a penis. It looks like a really dumb penis. Alright, fine. I'll post it on Facebook and Twitter because that's that's something.